0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is Undiscovered. Every year, 13 million people go out onto the water to watch whales and dolphins. Just watch them. Those are a few of those people that's a boat full of whale watchers in Baja. And chances are they paid good money to do this. We spend $2 billion a year to watch whales and dolphins. Like $2 billion, billion with a B, which might seem a little excessive, like a little over the top. Except it turns out everything about our love for whales and dolphins is just a little bit over the top. Like, you know, uh, we've got the t-shirts with the the leaping turquoise dolphins (laughs) on the front. The sunset in the background. Exactly. We listen to albums of whale song. And if we get a chance to touch, you know, actually pet a whale's barnacle-encrusted snout, we just lose it. Yes.
2: Oh. Oh, 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 boy.
1: oh. Oh.
3: Yeah, that guy did. Yes. I have to say, if I heard that that sound out of context, not sure I would have figured out it was about a guy petting a whale. <laughs> I did think about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway. anyway, we love whales and dolphins. Yes. Clearly. So love. much.
1: It's actually hard for us to imagine ever not feeling this way.
3: Except that we did. We felt very differently about these animals not that long ago. This guy, Roger Payne. He remembers it and he remembers specifically what happened one March afternoon in the mid 60s.
0: Yes, I was teaching at Tufts University and I was.
3: Roger was an assistant professor in biology and one day he's working in his lab.
0: And I heard over just the local radio station, oh, there's a whale washed ashore on Revere Beach. And I thought, oh, great, I've never seen a whale. I'd love to go see one.
3: So Roger jumps in his car. But by the time he gets to the beach, the sun's already set. It's dark out. It's raining hard. All of the other whale gawkers have gone home. So it's just Roger out there, and he's scanning the beach with his flashlight.
0: And um, I walked around the beach and found the whale. And it wasn't a whale. It was a dolphin.
3: Roger points out that dolphins are technically whales. It's just not the kind of whale that we usually think about. They're cetaceans, full-time aquatic mammals, just like sperm whales, blue whales, and porpoises. And anyway, Roger isn't splitting hairs at this point. In this moment, he's just focused on what people had done to this dolphin.
0: Somebody had carved their initials in the flank of this dolphin. Someone else had cut off its tail and the tail was missing. Somebody else had stuffed a cigar butt in the blowhole of this dolphin. And I just, I was just overwhelmingly shocked and depressed by the thought that this is, seems to be what happens when humans encounter these animals.
3: Roger stood there for a long time. He stood there so long that his flashlight battery gave out.
0: There was a source of lights in the distance, and I could see the silhouette of the curves, the glistening curves of this beautiful creature. And thought to myself, you know, God, there's got to be something different in how people deal with these animals when they encounter them.
1: Roger didn't know it then, but things were about to be very, very different for whales and dolphins. In a little over a decade, we'd go from thinking, like, maybe it's okay to stick my cigar butt in this animal's blowhole, to this. I did it again. All right. Is she kissing that way? Okay. And this transformation would happen in very large part because of one scientific discovery. I'm Annie. I'm Ella, and this is Undiscovered. And today we're bringing you the story of that discovery and the ragtag bunch of people who made it happen. I'm talking about an acid-dropping dolphin scientist, a poetry-writing university administrator,
3: and Roger. Yeah, because it's right around now that Roger makes a decision.
0: I gotta do something. I mean, this is just hopeless.
3: Yeah. Roger is gonna save the whales. So it's about the mid-60s, and Roger decides he's going to do something for whales. But what exactly Roger can do? Not totally clear, at least not from the outside. Roger doesn't have a lot of activism experience, and he doesn't even study cetaceans. He studies sound, how animals make it, use it, hear it. He's looked at bats and owls. But at this point in his career, he's all about
0: moths. Moths. How they avoid bats by hearing the direction from which a bat is coming.
3: Not really clear how a moth expert is going to save the whales. But Roger's got a bigger problem, and that is how much
1: most people in 60s America just do not care about whales. A hundred years ago, the Moby Dick era, whales were monsters. They were feared and respected. By the 60s, they're just commodities.
2: Which, as it turns out, they do serve pretty well as industrial commodities.
1: That's historian D. Graham Burnett. He wrote a book called The Sounding of the Whale, about the history of whale science. Graham says by the 60s, whales were being transformed into just a dizzying array of truly disgusting industrial products. Stuff like
2: granulated bone meal,
1: which was a fertilizer,
2: desiccated meat gravel,
1: which was a cheap feed for chickens. But he says the real money was in something else.
2: By far, the highest dollar value was actually ready yourself. Margarine.
1: In mid-century Europe, you cannot believe it's not butter. And you really don't want to know that it's hydrogenated whale oil. And by 1963, whales are being turned into butter at a rate that is making even whalers nervous. Scientists are reporting that there may be as few as 650 blue whales left in the entire Antarctic, and there aren't that many more humpbacks. For whales, things are looking really bad. For dolphins, less so. Although hundreds of thousands are dying every year in tuna nets. But there was actually one group of people around this time who did care about dolphins and whales, and they cared quite a lot, actually, because they had to. And those people were the U.S. Navy.
0: Real number
2: nine. Real number nine. We're playing humpbacks. Today's the sixth of February, 1967.
1: So in the 50s and 60s, the U.S. Navy, they are compiling this gigantic catalog of underwater animal sounds. Like, you've got Navy researchers headed out with underwater microphones. They're recording whales and dolphins and snapping shrimp. And sea robins. And spot fish. It's my favorite one, because you got to wait for it. And they're doing this for one very good reason.
2: There were Soviet submarines in those oceans. And you wanted to know when one of those was passing by. And that meant you had to be able to hear it.
1: I mean, this was the Cold War. If you could not tell a moaning whale from a Russian submarine, you were screwed. And so the Navy engineers who are listening to these whale tapes, it's not like they're having an aesthetic experience. Yeah, they're
3: not doing it for fun.
1: Right. Like, I think today we're kind of primed to hear these sounds and think, like, calming nature CD, Mm -hmm. spa music. But Graham says the guys who are listening to these tapes, that's not how they were hearing them.
2: Nobody thought of it as song. Nobody thought of it as music. People thought of it as noise.
3: But to Roger, this was interesting noise. A few years before he saw that dead dolphin on the beach, he'd actually heard some of the Navy's whale recordings. And he thought, maybe there's something that I animal sound expert can do for these animals, because I can study these sounds." At that point, it was just an idea, something he was thinking about, not something he acted on. But after he sees this dead dolphin, he comes back to it, and he decides to go searching for more of these whale recordings, and ends up finding the mother motherlode in the collection of one Navy sonar engineer he still remembers the day that this engineer hands him a pair of headphones threads this tape onto a tape machine and calls out,
0: I think it's a humpback whale. The sounds that I heard were absolutely transforming. They were shocking. I had never heard any animal make any sound, even approximately as intriguing and commanding. It was incredible.
3: Roger grew up listening to classical music. He's a pretty serious amateur cellist, plays a lot of chamber music. He thinks maybe that played into his reaction But for whatever reason, when Roger heard these sounds, he didn't hear noise like the Navy did. He heard music. And to hear Roger tell it, this is the moment he has the idea.
0: You know, if we could get humanity to hear these sounds, we could get them interested in whales probably enough to do something about it.
3: He thought, this sound, this is how we save the whales. Except he didn't actually know what that sound was. As a music lover, Roger was intrigued by the musicality of it. As a scientist, he is stumped. He has no clue. Roger estimates it had been about a year since he saw that
1: dead dolphin on the beach. It was 1967. 64,000 whales died that year. That's an average of one whale every eight minutes. So, this is what Roger's up against. This is what he's trying to stop. And all he has is this tape. But Roger's about to have something else. Roger is about to have an ally, an unconventional scientist who'd spent two years of his life trying to teach dolphins how to speak English. <coughs> and cultivating a truly fantastic dolphin impression. And together, this scientific odd couple, we're about to make whale history. The guy that Roger was about to team up with to save the whales, his name was Scott McVeigh. And Scott is not your typical scientist. Uh, He writes poetry. He's a very proud English major. But even though he didn't have, you know, the formal scientific credentials, back in the 60s, Scott was most definitely doing science.
4: Well, I was privileged to be working with a dolphin named Elvar, And it was my privilege to work with Elvar six days a week, morning and afternoon.
1: Scott was a researcher at something called the Communication Research Institute in Miami. This was a dolphin lab set up in an old bank building of all places. Okay. So I'm like imagining the vaults and the dolphin tanks next to them. There were seven dolphins who they all lived in this old bank. And Elvar was one of them.
4: He was the most precocious of these seven and maybe the most precocious dolphin we know of.
1: And this turned out to be pretty lucky because Scott's job was to try to teach Elvar to speak English. Scott's boss at the Communication Research Institute was this guy, big-shot brain scientist named John C. Lilly. And by the early 60s, Dr. Lilly had come to a few conclusions about dolphins. Um, A, that dolphins are super intelligent. B, they probably have their own language. And C, this is like the big one, uh, they're actively trying to communicate with us. They're actually like bending the air coming out of their blowholes, trying to make sounds like English words. And Dr. Lilly felt that we could actually help the dolphins along. Like we could eventually teach them to communicate in our
3: Right. Language. It would help to have an instructor when you're learning English. <laughs> Why not humans? And
1: Scott McBay, he's fascinated by all of this. I would want to do this. I mean, who wouldn't want to do this, right? He actually quits. He has this stable job as an administrator at Princeton University. Quits that job, moves his entire family down to Miami to, to work on this project, to teach dolphins English. Except, like, how do you... Yeah, where do you start? They... Grammar? <laughs> gerunds? <laughs> I don't know. Well, they started this way. So Scott would stand next to Elvar's dolphin tank, and he would read off this list of random sounds. These are consonant-vowel combinations. Sounded like this.
4: Ease, ooze, or. And he would come back with... <laughs> that is <laughs> me or, I... He'd give a response, and I'd I'd give him a butterfish. And then, at the very end of the session, (laughs) I would say in falsetto voice, push it up a little bit, uh, I would say the name of the institute. I would say, Communication Research Institute. And Elvar Evar came back like Anyway. That's a bastardization of the, the beautiful thing he was trying to do.
1: In retrospect, this can sound a little far-fetched. But for Scott, this was really important. Dolphin suggested an answer to this very profound problem.
4: The long loneliness.
1: The long loneliness. This wasn't a term that Scott came up with. It's actually the title of an essay by the science writer Lauren Isley.
4: And Isley had written. That as children, we talk to animals, typically dogs and cats if they're the most likely critters. And they don't seem to be answering. And eventually we stop talking.
1: It's like we try to have this back and forth with the animals in our lives, and it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. And we basically conclude, like, we're never going to have a back-and-forth conversation with another species.
4: And he said that we have been in this long loneliness for a long time, and now, perhaps finally, there may be a chance to communicate with another species, interspecies
1: communication. Roger Payne the Mothman, he got interested in cetaceans because he wanted to save them. But Scott McVeigh, he wanted to break through. He wanted a meeting of the minds. And that's why a few years before Roger stands on that beach with the mutilated dolphin, Scott is already standing by Elvers dolphin tank, doing this. And it's why he spends even longer analyzing the sounds that Elvar's making, which he does using a technology that's still like pretty cutting-edge at the time.
2: We're talking about sound spectrographs.
1: Historian Graham Burnett again.
2: A kind of representation of sound that's familiar to everybody who mucks around with GarageBand, but at the time was still, you know, very exciting. You could see sound.
1: You could feed a sound into this spectrograph machine, and this stylus would etch out the frequencies onto this roll of paper. It's sound in, squiggles out. The idea being, you might notice things in those scribbles, like patterns, complexities that your, that your ears wouldn't hear. And Scott pored over these scrolls. He's looking, he's trying to do what his boss wants him to do, which is find the e's, oo's, or See if syllables. See dolphins are, yeah, doing the English syllables. Exactly. But he's also looking at something else. So Elvar spent a lot of time uh, seemingly chatting back and forth with this other dolphin named Chi-Chi. Sound a little bit like this. And Scott, he's eavesdropping on that, too. He's trying to figure out, what is that back and forth? Is that, is that dolphin language? But he doesn't get that far. Because about two years after Scott joins the dolphin lab, it's starting to implode. And the problem is his boss. Dr. John C. Lilly. I mean, on the one hand, Lilly is doing a fantastic job promoting dolphins, like he's killing it. He's writing about talking dolphins in Life magazine. He's going on late night. He's a large part of the reason you could turn on a TV by the 1970s and hear a reporter say something like this.
4: These animals, small whales known as dolphins, may be second in intelligence on this planet only to man. They have a complex language we have been unable to crack, although they obviously understand us.
1: Lily is great at getting people really excited about dolphins. But his scientific results aren't exactly living up to the hype. He's not publishing a lot, possibly because he's dropping a lot of acid. (laughs) That would not help. It was the 60s. Maybe
3: it would help. I mean, the creative process, not the follow-through.
1: The lab's funders are understandably getting a little short on patience, But the real tragedy for Scott is what happens in 1965. Alvar the dolphin dies of pneumonia. And Scott is heartbroken. He moves home to Princeton, gets another university admin job. And it kind of seems like that's it. You know, no more dolphins, no more ease, ooze, or a few years pass, the long loneliness stretches on. Until Scott hears this.
3: That was moth prof Roger Payne's beloved whale tape. This is the one he thought might save the whales. Roger had actually read an article of Scott's in Scientific American. These two cetacean lovers, they start chatting, and pretty soon Roger lends Scott his tape. And when Scott hears these sounds, he's hooked, exactly like Roger. And after those
1: years in the dolphin lab, he knows what you do with a long tape of cetacean sounds. You feed them into a spectrograph machine. Sound in, squiggles out.
4: It turns out that on the Princeton campus, there's only one sound spectrograph.
1: Scott found it in the basement in this Princeton professor's bird lab, and he convinces the guy to let him use the machine on nights and weekends. And pretty soon Scott's running off thousands of these paper strips to strip after strip of whale sound.
4: Laying them out, looking them over.
1: Just like he'd done with Elvar's sounds.
4: And at first, this just seems like a cacophony of sounds,
1: but then he sees it.
4: Suddenly, it's, you just get it.
1: These sounds
3: are not random. There's a pattern here. So Scott takes his spectrograms to Roger to show him what he's seen, show him there is a pattern in these scrolls. And Roger does not need convincing. He says he'd heard this pattern. Now he could see it. And it works like this. You start with a unit.
0: A unit is a sound which is continuous to your ear. So whoop! That would be a unit.
3: You string a few of those units together., whoop,
0: boom, boom. That would be uh, what's called a phrase.
3: String a few of those phrases together. Whoop,
0: boom boom, whoop, boom, boom.
3: Now you've got a theme. And what Roger and Scott saw on those strips of paper is that those themes repeat. A whale would do theme a, theme B, theme C. and then a little while later he'd do it again, theme a, theme B, theme C. And that is a really big deal because...
0: When any animal repeats itself in a rhythmic way, it is said to be singing, whether it is a cricket or a frog or a bird or a bat or
3: a whale. That repetition, the fact that these themes are repeating in the exact same pattern over and over again, that meant that these sounds met some biologist's definition of song. And at a time where whaling nations are killing over 55,000 of these animals a year, that little bit of semantics matters. These animals that we're killing for granulated bone meal and desiccated meat gravel and butter, these animals are singing. The first time that Roger Payne had heard the whale tape, he thought, if I could just get people to listen to these sounds, things would change for whales. Now he saw his chance to make the world listen. Because he had whale song, and he was going to promote the hell out of it. He was going to worm it into pop culture whatever way he could. And that's exactly what he did. He goes on TV. He gives interviews about whale song.
0: The sounds of some species may travel for a good many miles underwater under special circumstances.
3: Roger gets his whale tape to the New York Philharmonic and convinces the orchestra to jam with his whales.
4: Dr. Payne's whale songs are now part of a concerto called And God Created Great Whales, played this week for the first time by the New York Philharmonic.
3: Roger tries to recruit pop stars to the cause, and he succeeds through sheer moxie, like Judy Collins, famous folk singer. He goes to one of her performances, finagles his way backstage, and hands her, like like he's handing a demo tape. Like he gives her his whale tape. And in
0: 1970, the world gets this.
3: It's Judy Collins duetting with a whale on her hit record, Whales and Nightingales. Why are you laughing? That's your FM voice? Yeah. The whale tape that she's singing along to is one of Roger's.
4: To find riches
3: In hunting Roger even puts out his own record of whale songs, calls it Songs of the Humpback Whale. Descriptive. And Roger's record is a sleeper hit it becomes the best-selling natural sounds album of all time. And people
1: are not just chilling with this record at home, right? This isn't your nature sounds for insomniacs record. They're taking these sounds to the front lines in the battle to save the whales. Case in point, in 1975, this band of activists from Vancouver, calling themselves Greenpeace, head out into the Pacific to intercept Soviet whaling ships.
0: Okay, all hands on deck! One, two, three, four, five over there. There's one by the Vostok, and there's three over here. There's nine chasers together
1: On June 27th, Greenpeace spots one of these Soviet whaling ships. It's this hulking vessel called the Vostok. And the Greenpeace boat, it pulls up alongside this ship, and the activists start speaking to the Soviet crew through this set of loudspeakers. They're pleading with them to stop whaling.
0: Hello, Vostok. We are Canadians. We don't want you to kill the whales. Why must you do it?
1: And the other thing these Greenpeace activists are doing? They're blasting Roger's whale record. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hours later, this confrontation comes to a head. The whalers shoot a harpoon straight over this tiny, inflatable Greenpeace boat that the protesters had been maneuvering between the harpoon and the whale. The harpoon flies over the activists' heads just 15 feet above them, hits the whale. Footage of this airs on news stations across North America. And by now it was clear something had shifted. Like 10 years earlier, most people had not cared about whales, and now, Activists were literally shielding these animals with their bodies. And anyone who watched the evening news knew about it.
4: We must begin to have respect for other life, for comrade dolphin and comrade whale. Because without them, the oceans begin to die. And if the oceans Mm -hmm. begin to die, we all
1: begin to die. It would take another decade of international haggling, but by the mid-80s, commercial whaling was a shadow of its former self. Did Whale Song
2: save the whales? Uh, I would say Whale Song did save the whales.
1: Historian Graham Burnett.
2: In other words, it turns out that there is a powerful line between people's ears and their brains these sounds received as musical expression, wormed their way into the mind hearts of listeners and created that powerful sense of social coordination that can only be achieved in the kind of rhythmic and melodic structures of music. An anthem? An anthem, but yes, an anthem.
3: Roger Payne thought if people could just hear these sounds and understand them as song, they'd think about these animals differently. They wouldn't think of them as monsters or butter or fertilizer, but as a species like us, one that's worth saving. And he was totally right. Song worked amazingly. Today, some whale species are still struggling. There are a few populations that are even at risk of extinction, like the northern right whales. But a lot are coming back, especially humpbacks, the whales on Roger's record. Roger Payne, for the most part anyway, he got what he wanted. But Scott McVeigh...
1: Scott wrote something in his memoir that, frankly, surprised me. He wrote that after he discovered the pattern in the whale song, he felt depressed. Why did you feel depressed by it?
4: Well... Because, you know, even Caruso singing on a stage is interesting for a long time, but not forever. What I was hoping for was something that was back and forth, back and forth, a conversation.
1: Whale song changed the game for whales, but it didn't end the long loneliness. We still don't have a back and forth with whales, or dolphins for that matter. Not in the way that Dr. Lily thought we would. So the thing that Scott had been hoping for to break through to another species hasn't really happened. And that's basically where Roger and Scott's story ends. Or at least that's where we're going to leave them. But before we go, mm. before you write off talking dolphins completely... <laughs> a footnote. A footnote. Because... It turns out there is something pretty interesting about all those clicks and whistles that Scott was listening to. And it has to do with how complex those sounds are. So if you just forget dolphins for a second, like look at a human language like English, if I want to put a number to how complex English is, one thing that I could do is I could take a chunk of spoken English and I could graph out how often every sound in that chunk occurs. And then you math. Math, 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 math. Math happens. That's Sherry Wells-Jensen. She's a linguist at Bowling Green State University. And you get a certain curve,
3: right? You get a certain kind of line.
1: That line is one measure of how complex a language is. And what linguists have known for a long time is that if you look at a human language, doesn't really matter which one, it could be English or Hindi or Japanese, that line basically looks the same. It has that same baseline complexity. But then... In the 90s, Sherry says, these scientists did something really interesting. They started looking at animals, and they wanted to know, is there an animal out there that has the same line as human language? And at first it seems like maybe not. You know, they look at squirrel-monkey communication? Not complex. And in fact, they look at human-baby communication, like human-baby babbling. That line doesn't look like the line for adult language. So you're like, okay, animals don't seem to have this. Babies don't seem to have this.
0: And then here comes the big, here comes the fun part. You look at dolphin communication and it has it.
3: It's as complex. And when I, when I, when I first heard that, like cold shivers just went down my spine. Dolphins?
1: They have this telltale complexity that even human babies don't have. And that doesn't tell us what they're saying, it doesn't give us a way in. But it's just one more reason to think that this work that Roger and Scott started, it is so far from over. There are secrets in whale and dolphin sounds. There's complexity there. We're lonely now, but we might not be lonely forever. Undiscovered is reported and produced by me, Annie Minoff.
3: And by me, Ella Fetter. Our senior editor is Christopher Intagliata. Our composer is Daniel Peterschmidt. And our production intern is Caitlin Swaljay.
1: We got fact-checking help from Michelle Harris. I am robot and proud wrote our theme. Special thanks this week to the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island, Jack Horowitz, and Katie Lupica.
3: D. Graham Burnett's book on the history of whale science is The Sounding of the Whale. And Scott McVeigh's memoir is Surprise Encounters. A quick unrelated note, Bostonians,
1: I am going to be in your city in two weeks for the very first Sound Education Conference. If you like educational podcasts, if you make an educational podcast, you might dig it. Check it out at Mm soundeducation.fm. See you next week.
3: (coughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I felt like there was a dolphin in this booth.